Hey, welcome to the One Link Podcast. I'm excited to be here with you on round two of the interviews. What do we have up with us today, Zach? Well, we have Josh with us again, and he's going to continue what he's been sharing with us about evangelizing and discipling Hindus and from his experience uh, in India. And so, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump right back into it. Excellent. Here we go. Well, Josh, welcome back with us. Uh, you know, we talked last time about how to share with Hindus, and I thoroughly enjoy that. What about when somebody becomes a believer, Hindu background believer? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. How do we disciple a Hindu background believer? What are some of the challenges they face, maybe compared to Americans that we're used to discipling? No. Oh. Thanks, James. Good to keep talking with you and um, Zach here today. And yeah, I think there are a couple of unique things that probably the average American or maybe student who's on a trip or who would see a Hindu come to Christ may not be aware of. And and probably the biggest one, and maybe this is a hindrance even before people come to Christ, is really seeing that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone obviously with hundreds of millions of God that we talked about that Hindus believe in. So really getting them to see that. And really, this is a miracle of grace that I'm so grateful for, that once people believe, it's amazing how they come to the realization with the Holy Spirit in their heart that they can't keep idols in their home or pictures of the other gods. But I would say even before you would invite someone to become a believer, to accept Christ, to like bend their knee and um, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. People have to understand that it is the expectation of Jesus that he is the only one. So you could easily get a Hindu to repeat a, what you would think of as a sinner's prayer, and they would do it happily. And they would smile at you and maybe feel really good about it. Um, But they may also go home and do puja that night to other idols and never even realize there's a problem with that. So anybody sharing the gospel or discipling a new believer needs to be really, really careful, really clear. And and maybe even having, you know, if you're in another country, a, a Christian from that culture to help kind of speak into it and clarify as well in the local language. So just remembering things like John 14, 6 that Jesus is the only way that Max 412, there is no other name. So that's going to be an issue. It's got to be addressed what to do with the other gods and how to turn from that. And that really leads to baptism. Now we know that baptism doesn't save anyone. We know that it's an outward picture of what happens in someone's heart, that if you go into the water with sin in your heart, it might wash the uh, dirt off your body, but not the sin out of your heart. So um, that happens beforehand, but especially in a Hindu culture, I think it's important to understand this is a huge deal because the Hindu and those who hear about it, the point of conversion that Hindus understand is the point at which they're dunked in the water. Most families wouldn't have much of an issue with another family member going to a Christian meeting, going to a Bible study, going to a church, maybe even every Sunday. They probably wouldn't get worked up or angry or mad until the point they got baptized. Now, you and I know God did a work of regeneration in their heart when they heard the gospel and believed that and they were born again. But again, in the mind of the Hindu, that's when they publicly identify with Christ. So baptism in their mind is an acceptance of the gospel. But think about this. It is a rejection of the family in some ways. It's a rejection of Hinduism. It's a turning from other gods, and it's a actually identification as a Christian. Now, you and I on our ID cards, 
for our driver's license do not have Christian listed on there. Most other nations or many other nations in the world actually has your religion there. And you have to take an affidavit to change that. So part of being a citizen is to be with the majority religion. Baptism's a big deal. Maybe you had a question about that? Yeah, just why, how do they see baptism before? Like, what is it about that that suddenly makes it like, okay, now you believe? Where, like, for us, it's like, I invite somebody to your baptism, but we don't really. I mean, do they have a cultural, do they get baptized in some of their, or do they do something similar to baptism in some of theirs? Right. Why does that make it the point of no return? One is um, in our seeking to be really clear that baptism doesn't save. We probably de-emphasized it. And there are, you know, even I mean, I met a student last week um, who um, was like in their second or third year in a Bible program here, embarrassingly, and had not yet been baptized. And you will find, um, you know, we've maybe de-emphasized that too much. We know it's not part of salvation. It's important, though, to still do that. There are important ritual washings in Hinduism. It's not an initiation into Hinduism, but it's an important part of it. Going to the Ganges, um, water is seen as really holy. When people open their shops in the morning, besides moving incense all around and saying some prayers to the gods, they would take holy water and sprinkle it all over. They may even sprinkle water or move incense around like the money drawer and wave it in front of it. So there are important things in Hinduism that happen with water even after you die and you're cremated. The crematories are always on the river that they believe is connected to the Ganges and your ashes are spread back into that water. So water is highly symbolic, but they, it's funny, Hinduisms actually take the Christian practice and ritual of baptism really seriously. They see like it's intended to be your identification with Christ. So it is a formal public declaration, which is funny, that Hindus actually take really seriously <laughs> and, and maybe Christians ought to take it more seriously. So in their mind, it's conversion. Okay. Gotcha. What about discipling them in the area of persecution? We don't typically receive a lot of persecution here. How do we disciple them in that? Yeah, I would say discipling people for persecution um, is what it means to be a normal Christian, which means um, we are abnormal in some ways in our expectations of Christianity in this country and what we would expect. I'd point you um, first to a couple places in scripture in Acts 13 and 14, particularly at the end of chapter 14. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And as he preaches, makes disciples, he's appointing elders. And it's really interesting there. It says he's preparing them and teaching them about persecution. It's a normal part of what he did then. Um, In Philippians chapter one, when Paul says, I've been put in prison. We know that Philippians is a prison epistle and actually encourage and strengthen others to be bold in their proclamation. We kind of expect the opposite, but it was normal. And just think about the teachings of Jesus. No one is greater than his teacher, and they hated Jesus, and they're surely going to hate us. So I think from a biblical perspective, it's expected. And we know the reality in in many Hindu cultures is there's going to be some type of hardship. Not everyone's going to be beaten. Um, not everyone is in danger of losing their life. There, there are some families that may accept that. But for many, 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 it's going to be really hard economically. It's going to be hard in some of those situations where you find multi-generations of families living together, where when you get married, especially as a woman, you would go and be expected to live with your in-laws who may be Muslim. So just the dailiness of life and, and those hardships at minimum would be difficult. But in many cases, it's going to cost them a whole lot more. 
It may cost them their job, may cost them their education, may cost them social influence and other things. So there is a price to be paid. It ought to be part of the normal discipleship to point people just to scripture. How do, how do we teach that when we don't experience it that much? How do we enter into that with them? Especially if you're like, you're seeing a big work of God, like you can't, you also can't like move 50 people into your house and, you know, provide jobs for them. How do you walk through that? Yeah. Um, I think Zach and I would both say that's a very humbling reality when he or I have lived cross-culturally for almost two decades each and have seen many brothers and sisters suffer. And then to be the one to take the scripture when it's not my life that's on the line. Hmm. And I think I have to remember in those cases, the authority that I have to speak the word of God does not come from myself and my experience, but because the gospel is true, it is right. And I'm a messenger of that word. And that gives me confidence to give them what God has spoken to them and to say that confidently and boldly. And I would say, I have to be willing to lay down my own life. If I'm going to say that I have to be willing to walk through those, uh, those things and not wish persecution and hardship on myself or anyone else, but to point people to scripture for their hope and for their encouragement and a worldview. I think this needs to be even more common. And I think the day is already beginning to come here when that would be normal. I would say first Peter as well. First Peter is all about persecution. I mean, we could go on and on about scripture that talks about this again. Maybe we're not the normal ones because we don't talk about this um, maybe enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that our Western experience is not really a true biblical experience because it has not experienced, it is not related to a lot of ex- persecution, or at least what we describe as persecution is not to the level they are. So mm-hmm. I point them to say, look, this is, you're experiencing what the early believers experienced and take a lot of encouragement in that. That is normal. Do not look at me as someone who <laughs> your your life is going to be like that. It, look at the scriptures you now. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes into our next next point that you you had on your list about like the health and wealth gospel influence. How do we keep them from thinking like, oh, this means a, a passport to America and everything will be better? Yeah, I think it's passing along a biblical worldview that I, I said in the other podcast that is theocentric. It's God centered. Christianity is not merely about meeting our needs. Ultimately, it's good for you. Ultimately, there are blessings in Christ, uh, but I don't come to Christ merely for what I will get. The gospel is a proclamation of what is true. It is an invitation. It is an invitation to blessing, but it's also a proclamation. Jesus is king. Jesus is the creator. He is worthy. He is eternal. He's the creator, he's the redeemer, he's the king, and whether or not you believe it or not, it is true. He is the Lord of the universe. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So it's not merely about come and get, come and be healed. And the problem, a lot of problems with the health and wealth gospel, it's the wrong timing. It promises in this life what is not intended for this life. Hmm. It gives people the wrong hope. Um, We're to hope in Christ. We're to hope in the comfort of his presence with us in persecution. We're to hope in, um, you know, the church and the body of Christ together. We're to hope that um, our suffering will be a witness to others. So it's pointing people to the wrong hope, the wrong timing, the wrong comfort. 
John Piper is famous, and I've probably been in, influenced by him a little bit in, in understanding this, but because Hinduism is all about worship the God and ask the request, and it's almost like manipulating the gods. I give you this. It's like transactional. Mm-hmm. The health and wealth gospel is very transactional. Hinduism is transactional, like the business. I give God worship. I do these rituals in my home. I remember him, and he gives me stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a give and take like God needs and I get. It's a business. Religion Mm -hmm. is a business in that sense. When you come to the gospel, it's not a business. You bring nothing. God does not need you. And that's really good news because we worship him because he is given of his grace. So just giving a healthy biblical worldview and understanding what's a right motivation in the Christian life. And the Mm -hmm. primary motivation is not to get what I need Mm -hmm. or things of this world. Yeah. Let me ask this. Uh, my limited experience with Hindus, I once I went to a, one of the countries there, spent a week with a discipleship school, uh, reading all their testimonies. Probably 80% of them had came to faith because somebody in their family got healed. And my understanding is that's pretty a pretty typical story or a way God's definitely working there. How do we move from like health and wealth when it's like, wow, you did get healed, you know, like, and what happens later when they don't get healed and some, you know, and or someone, how does that play out? Yep. Great, great question. Many may know that like in the Muslim world, maybe dreams or something that, that often people talk about. And in the Hindu world, it would be a more of healing. And man, I, I can't count the number of testimonies I've heard of. I was sick, look for all this help, hospitals, gods, whatever, went to a Christian, they prayed for me and I was better. And now I'm here at church. So when I was training pastors and and other believers, I would say, one, praise God. Now you're at the starting point, right? Because one, they have come to you. So don't just pray for them. Don't just have this big meeting with all these Hindus that are there that you see all over India, public meetings of Christians, and it's a prophecy and healing movement and pray for their healing, but preach the gospel. What happened when, when people came to Jesus? There were so many people who came to Jesus for all kinds of different reasons. Nicodemus came to talk about miracles. The woman at the well was a conversation about water. I love the Jesus method of evangelism because Jesus often didn't answer the presenting question that they came to him with, but he turned the conversation to talk about like what really mattered. So let people come for healing. Let people come for prayers. God's going to heal some and not others. And let's leave that up to him. But let the desire for God's help and crying out physically be an intentional part of like getting to the gospel and pointing them to their greatest need because Christians care about suffering. We care a whole lot. We care about all kinds of suffering. We especially care about the greatest suffering and the greatest need. And we believe that is the problem of sin and separation from God. So we are not cold toward um, or uncaring towards people's physical needs. But if we merely do that, then we're not actually getting to what's the overall goal. It's worship in order to worship, which is to respond rightly to God. We've got to respond to something. We've got to respond to the proclamation of the scripture. So scripture proclamation is central to missions and not merely praying for like physical stuff. Can I ask uh, Josh, is there, I mean, would you say there is there a role for what some have called power encounter evangelism and those types of things? Are there some some positives? Uh, obviously, I know that there are probably some drawbacks as well. Anything you might like to say about that kind of approach going into areas and 
if they're responding with, hey, healings are, are important to me because you know we're suffering so much. Is there a role for going into villages with that in mind, looking for miracles? Not as if we do anything, but God does it, obviously. But uh, yeah, what, what, what might you say to that? One, I think it's a, a loaded terminology that might be a little bit dangerous when we're talking about a public setting that has a lot of charismatic overtones. My concern with those types of things is it emphasizes, again, the physical, and it often emphasizes the prophet or the person that's in front and what they're doing. Often they're not ministering in their own area, but traveling all around and, and they have these gifts. And my other concern about that is I've seen it over and over ago where Hindus go to those things. And they're happy to go forward and they're prayed over. But the gospel is the proclamation or evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim of persuading people to repent and believe. And my concern about those is there's no call to personal decision to repentance. There's not a clear proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's I have special power. And it's almost presenting yourself like a Hindu guru. Hmm or a powerful man that based on my strength, you come forward, you be quiet, you just listen, you don't even have to understand, you bow before me in a way, and I'll lift up my hand and invoke the God or this particular God, Jesus, over you, and you'll just go away. And they don't understand that their greatest need is salvation or sin, and it often promotes a man instead of the man, Jesus. So personally, pray for them, proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pray for their their personal healing, but as far as like wide scale, like coming in with this intentionality of we're gonna we're gonna show the demons who's boss here, and um, you know, I've got these spiritual gifts. I'm I'm a little um, leery and leery. Yeah, healing services were very popular among a lot of the churches to have a just a large group come. So that's why I asked that question in South Asia. I think it's related to this. It's also related to their animistic tendencies to look for that first. And I agree with you, many, many, in fact, most would come to me and say, oh, I bec- I'm a Christian, and what do you know about Jesus? Oh, I don't know much about him, except that he healed me, <laughs> or mm-hmm. he healed my mother, or something of that nature. And so, yeah. uh, but I like how you said that. That's an introduction to the discipleship process. So, I like that. And, you know, I could see a faithful church like once a month, or I don't know about once a week, but inviting the sick and community to pray over them. But again, clearly preaching the gospel and praying over their needs, but also like saying, we know you have this physical need, but here's what says about your greatest need. That's excellent. What are some of the other things that are important in discipling them? Yeah. You know, a new believer may be tempted to think like Christianity is a foreign religion helping them understand God was always concerned about the nations Been walking through that in my intro to missions to class recently from the very beginning from, you know, Abraham and the choosing of Israel. It was never for particular people alone. God chose specific people for like a missional universal purpose for, for all the nations. So helping them to see that and to think through the issues, they may be thinking like, Hey, did I just deny my country? Like uh, my religion, like what's going on? How did they think through that? And again, in some ways replacing that with a Christian family and showing them they're truly not alone. um, And other believers are there. Another issue just might be like just family discipleship, helping them to like the question I said, who are you going to marry? How do I deal with my parents and my mom? And, you know, are they going to pay for my education? Are they going to kick me out of the family? So thinking through how might they share their testimony, 
especially if it's a young person, it may be um, thinking through the timing of their baptism, not to delay it, not to encourage disobedience, but um, especially if it's an 18 to 25 year old who's not married, it would be a wonderful thing to get, if possible, the blessing of the family. That might happen through a pastor going or a group of people going or inviting those family and other members. I know a particular family, friends of ours that have been married now for five years, they were scared to death what would happen at a Christian wedding. Remember, they don't eat beef. So often they'll think, well, if you become a Christian, they'll force you to eat beef. So they carefully planned out the wedding. They invited many of these Hindu relatives and those Hindu relatives, hundreds of them still talk about the beauty and the, and the, just the, what happened at this Christian wedding that they didn't know what was going to happen. And they heard the gospel there and they are praising what, you know, I'll say praising, but praising what God has done in this young couple's life and given them a child and other things. So in that way, it was a testimony and was not divisive. So maybe slowing down and be careful enough for someone to go and maybe not always the son, because direct is not always the best way in South Asia and to explain, to encourage, to answer questions so that there's an understanding of what's going on. Just a little wisdom and care and honoring a father and mother, even as eventually you might have to say, if you demand I be a Hindu and do these things, I can't. And if it does mean walking away, I have to follow Christ above you, but, but trying to be patient and to bring others along so that they might believe or at least understand would be wise in helping that national believers um, who've walked through that before. Are going to really help. Yeah. I was going to say this might be beyond the context of, of our summer teams, but what does that, what does that look like when I'm a, like, let's say, is the pastor a stranger to the family? Like, how does he go in and have this conversation? And is it amicable or is it like, I don't, I can't even picture it. Yeah. The ones at least that I've heard of were, hopefully they see one in their child or family member, a change, a love, a mm. living a right life. And they're like a godly example and something has changed about them and, and asking the opportunity, Hey, can my pastor come and explain and answer questions and talk to you? Like, what does baptism mean? And why do we do that? And and to encourage them in that way, and even to share the gospel, especially if it's maybe an older man who might be respected even more than a child in a weird way. Um, so that might be something. Zach? Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, this is related. Just can you speak to the idea of new believers understanding a Christian marriage and the relationship and the value of that, uh, even parenting children and and how that can be so necessary? I found that was such a a need for new uh, Hindu background converts who were getting married to understand how now the Christian marriage is going to look a little different. Right. Yeah. And the importance of saying like, it's not just a Western, a Western marriage, whether on the day of the ceremony or like kind of what marriage looks like inside of our home. But there's obviously in any family who's an unbeliever, a lot of ungodly things that happen and expectations between a husband and wife. So like what are cultural things that might be maintained, even like roles within family? I was with a young couple yesterday, Cedarville students who are going to get married and we were talking about roles within the family and kind of who's going to do what. Well, that's not what we're what we're talking about so much, but clearly teaching biblical patterns of what's expected like Ephesians chapter five, what it looks like for us to love our wives and to honor them, to submit to Christ and what that looks like. So pointing out things that are unhealthy 
this is one of the biggest needs. It's one of the greatest things when Amy and I did marriage conferences that people would laugh and love and talk about and wanted to talk about and needed help because people need to know about the Trinity. Like that's absolutely essential to understanding that. And people want to know, like, how do we live that out? Like, what difference does it make in our parenting and in our home and um, conflict in the home? And like, what does this look like now? So, and that's part of the job of equipping pastors, I would say as well. And if you're a college student listening to this, it may be asking the pastor there and leaving some of that up to you not being the teacher. I would never ask foreigners who've never been in South Asia to come and teach on marriage because I think they can make a lot of cultural mistakes and assume things about their marriage that should be true of everyone everywhere. We need to make sure we're being biblical. So this is where a healthy partnership with godly men and women, if there are in those contexts that would that should take the lead at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe one or two more that, that we have here that would be helps so as we think about, again, Hindu discipleship. We're not talking about Hindus anymore, but those who would come to faith and some of the issues that, that they would face. There would be a lot of, of fear around stopping the traditions that they have done before. Like we mentioned, they would wear some things on their body and like cutting those off, taking the gods out of your home. Um, not having the pictures, not participating in the rituals. So there will be a lot of accusations and fear thrown by other Hindus. Like if you stop worshiping this God, all this evil is going to come upon you. Not only individually, but if you don't do these rituals and things, not only are you putting yourself in jeopardy, you're putting the whole community and family in jeopardy. And I promise you, if anything bad happens to the family, if there's an accident on a motorcycle or a child gets sick or mama has a stroke or the neighbor's dog dies, like, I'm serious, it's going to be blamed on the Christian. Oh, it's because you were baptized. You have brought this evil. There's an incredible amount of guilt that could be laid at their feet. There could be an incredible amount of shame. So you're not just making an individual decision, but now your mom and dad are going to hear it from all the neighbors and uncles and aunts and grandma because something bad has happened. And it's obviously spiritual causation because you turn to a God that's not ours. Like you need to come back. So the continual encouragement, both to turn from these outward forms, understanding what scripture says about like cause and effect and what's going on in God's sovereignty and giving them a place to be safe and heard and accepted when the voices in their ear are going to be both before their conversion and after their baptism I'm not saying those are equal, by the way, Um, both of those things would would be something to help a a young Hindu background believer with. How do you help them do that? Like say something bad happens right after they're baptized, what do you encourage them to do? Sometimes it's just being pastoral and being with people. Mm. Sometimes it's reminding them of gospel truths. Sometimes it's reminding them that the enemy is a liar and um, a deceiver and an accuser and reminding them of those things and helping them understand there's not direct causation between that and others and encouraging them in the truths of the gospel, personal testimonies from other believers who are like-minded and have walked through several similar things and just not leaving them alone, uh, like having community to, to share and maybe even to grieve with and even to question a little bit, pointing them to a psalm mm. where you know, I think it was in Psalm 77 um, that we were in our family last night and David just like grieving and questioning, but yet like turning back in faith. That's really good. 
What about CAS? That's come up a couple of times and I've wanted to ask you, I feel like the CAS system is about as far removed from American Western culture worldview as you can be. Help me understand a little bit about that, about how that fits in as a believer, maybe even before belief, but tell me about that. Yeah. I, first, I would say yes and no. It is it is very race-based in a way. Caste is not exactly the color of your skin, but it has a lot to do with it. Hmm. So you think about what happened with slavery in our country, what happened in South Africa with apartheid, what happens around the world. And everywhere I've been around the world, race has been an issue. With the Zambian people, I can remember who are quite dark-skinned, being with them, brothers and sisters in Christ, and hearing them um, talking about the skin tones of people within their people group. We have um, discriminated on the base of race and color, and that's a lot of what's going on, not the only thing that's going on within Hinduism, and that makes it really, really hard. What's amazing, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples And one of his big prayer requests that they would be unified, that they would be one. And he based that on the unity that he had with the Father for all of eternity. So the unity within the Trinity is to be an example for us. And as Jesus prays for his disciples, he did that so that it would be a testimony to the world and that so that they might believe, which is powerful. Traditionally, Hindu culture, an untouchable Dalit could not allow their shadow to fall on a Brahmin. A Dalit historically, and I'm thinking like 200 years back now, might even get some of the dust that a Brahmin walked on and even like drink that. As weird as that sounds, there are William Carey and his cohort there 200 years ago talked about that. So one, a lot has changed. India has modernized in many ways, and some of the things that happen do not happen today. It is very hard for the gospel to move up. If you think about it, like Brahmins are at the very top. Everyone serves them. They're higher in this um, cycle of life. So that's why the gospel in many ways has taken off among tribal peoples and among lower caste. They have nothing to lose. They're almost out of the caste system anyway. So to convert to Christianity, whereas those in upper caste have often been hard to break into because of pride, because of where they are, because of their willingness to listen. And among tribal groups in Africa, the gospel often moves pretty freely between those. There may be some animosity and some historic things, but you'll see that. Even tribal groups in like the Northeast of India will move. It's been historically very hard because of the beliefs of Hinduism for the gospel to move between different tribes. You might have a village meeting with different castes historically, and even today, And you would find different fires, different meals, different utensils, and they would not eat together. I was in one of these countries two months ago, and we had a man who was with us who was a tour guide, and we had another man who was a driver, and we were with a bunch of students, and one of them was eating with us at the table. The other man would not come and sit with us. The students kept imploring him, hey, come eat with us. You know, we're going to eat. He's like, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. He wouldn't come over and sit. And I finally told the students, stop asking. And the reason was they were different castes. They could not sit at the same table and eat from the the, the same time at the same place. Here's the power of the gospel. When you see in in my church and many other churches, you see this people from different castes eating together, taking the Lord's Supper. Like that is a huge thing that they would take this supper together from different castes in the same room, from the same utensils 
touch, sit by each other, sing with each other, visit each other's home, take a meal together. It is a powerful witness in a confusing way, honestly, to many Hindus that they would judge that and think, one, that's weird that you would do that. But that's what the gospel does. It is a beautiful picture. So you will find many churches that way. And in some churches, it's the only people group around is one. So it'll be mainly one. And not all churches historically of one people group have done a good job of inviting others. So imagine that there has been unity, disunity historically in the church. We're not surprised. But I would say where the gospel has lived out, it's been a powerful example. Wow. I would also say that even within Christian churches in South Asia, this is a big struggle for believers who have converted to still not think that way, not think, hey, these are folks from a different tribe, or these are folks from a different economic class, or these are folks who are who were converted from a different caste. It can still be difficult for them to, to really apply that gospel message, uh, even in Christian churches in South Asia. That's been my experience, but it is so, so critical to do that. And again, the marriage issue, you know, some kind of marry a cross cast within the, you know, Christianity. Others are still kind of following that expectation of same kind of socioeconomic caste level. So mm-hmm. I know we're, our time is getting low, but maybe one more discipleship issue. And that's just the sanctity of, of human life. Many, this is not a big issue in Hinduism. Uh, many go to the doctor or think about that. There's there's not a big debate going on. It's not a major political thing. Nobody really cares. No one's thinking. Women are going to the doctor, you know, finding they're pregnant. And remember, you've got the richest of the rich and the educated. You got over a billion people to others who are not nearly as educated and are really not aware all that's happening with their bodies and pregnancy and chemical abortions and taking a pill. I mean, it's I wouldn't even dare guess the number that that's happening and women finding out about what's really going on in those early pregnancy and, and knowing that at the moment of conception that a human life begins and that it's valuable and not to terminate it in the womb. Those are important issues to bring up as well. I know missionaries and churches that have done a great job of helping to educate in that area. So um, that might make the top 10 list thing as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time. We know you got to get to class and uh, your, your students are lucky to have you, blessed to have you uh, on this part of the world. And uh, I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot today. We'll put a link to this article uh, in the show notes so people can see it. But I really, really, really appreciate you fleshing out some of that with us. Well, thank you guys, Zach and James. Appreciate you being able to chat together today. Thank you, Josh.